We love living in San Antonio. One of the great blessings of being here is that there are provided for us three different types of trash recycling and composting receptacles. Being the parents of four children, we can create all three of those things in abundance. Uh, and so it's nice to have those color-coded for us, weekly pickups, assigned bins that are provided for us by whoever the angels of refuse are here in the county or city. But a previous treadmill domicile uh, in unincorporated Fort Bend County did not provide those services. The neighborhood itself had to contract with uh, somebody to come pick up the trash uh, and the recycling kind of um, less options. And so perhaps this won't make sense to you if you've always lived under the beauty of these live oak trees. But I had the amazing experience years ago of attempting to throw away a trash can. <laughs> okay, some of you at least can consider why that might be awkward. When it belongs to somebody else, they provide it, you never deal with this. I guess if it breaks now, you, a wheel breaks, or the hole comes into it, you call them and they bring you new one. I actually haven't had that experience yet in the four years we've been here. But this trash can had served its time, it was done. And so I put it out on the curb next to the new trash can that was full of things. And they emptied the trash can, and they left them both there. Well, that makes sense, I guess. Uh, it's a delivery vehicle for trash. It's not trash. And so I tried again, thinking, well, when they see it this next time, of course, they will remember, and they will, they'll throw it away. They took the empty can and shook it out and put it back on the ground, and I still had my busted trash can. You can't throw away something that the person doesn't think is trash. In this season of Advent, we've been looking at how our expectations sometimes need to be modified, formed, even expectational therapy. Last week, John the baptizer challenged our notion of what made us clean, how we might find ourselves in God's story. He doesn't dress right. He doesn't look right. He doesn't eat right. He's not in the right place. And yet here is God speaking through him and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Out in the wilderness, a voice now crying out, just as Isaiah said it would be, and no one quite expected. Our expectations about what our gospel, what the good news, and what the season's about need to be checked and reformed, because it's easy for them to get deformed by ads we see, by stories we live, by lives we've been a part of, back against the scriptural witness of what indeed God has for us. And that excitement is a part of the season. And sometimes, even though it can become cliche or used as leverage to sell us stuff, sometimes kids really are the best at reminding us about this. This morning, before the sun had risen, my daughter had. And in the darkness, she whisper yelled at me, why isn't it Christmas yet? <laughs> She's five. And I responded, why aren't you still asleep? And she said, this is beside the point. Why isn't it Christmas yet? She's excited. Or she knows something great is coming, and the waiting for it is this tension of expectation. Something in the wisdom of God, in the profound mystery of the story, is not only do we receive, but we get to expect the reception that's coming. And part of the greatness of the gift is in the waiting. We looked last week at the third chapter of Matthew. Now we're in Matthew 1. 
Matthew 1 uh, is not a passage you probably read all that often. Matthew 1 is one of the reasons why I think when folks ask, what recommendation would you give to somebody who's going to read the gospel for the first time? Where should they start? Invariably, I will say like 7 out of 10 folks uh, would say the gospel of John. I think not because John's superior to Matthew, it's because you don't start with Matthew 1 which is actually the beginning of the New Testament. But in our culture, this 1 through 18 we're going to read today, eh, we know it's there. We're not opposed to it, hostile to it. It just, the names kind of sound funny. I did sort of um, threaten the worship team here that I was going to go with King James today so we could begat these folks. We're not. (laughs) But it's the genealogy. Uh, Listen now for the word of God. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we're talking about Jesus. He is the Messiah, a royal claim. His sonship is of David and of Abraham, two huge figures in the Old Testament story, big time people of the promise. The son of David, 2 Samuel 7 says, David, someone will come and sit on your throne, someone from your line who will reign forever. The son of Abraham, Abraham, I am calling you to go a new way to lead a people You and your family, you and your family will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Promise rooted in David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amnadab, and Amnadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. King David gets a title. And David was the father of Solomon, also a king, but doesn't get the title, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Reboam, and Reboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. You still here? And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconi, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's the exile, destruction of the city gates, breaking down of Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed, the people are in exile. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Southel, and Southel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elud, Elud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah happened in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. To God, I don't know why we don't read that every year. (laughs) Interestingly enough, as was very well read by our uh, readers who came up for the Advent reading, the internet 
this great new adventure has awakened, for some folks at least, a sense of the power of a genealogical story. That is, learning who your ancestors are or where they're from or, or what their, uh, not only DNA might have been that they contributed to, but also some of the births and deaths and things that they did became part of the story, folks that we didn't know. Because in our culture, the ancient stories of our family's past don't generally get handed down in great detail or at all. But that isn't true throughout history and in most cultures. Other than this one, we're kind of unique in a lot of ways. Maybe to our detriment. In other cultures to this day, they not only read Matthew 1, they memorize it. Because in some cultures, if you want to know who somebody is, they want to know who their people are. Who are your people? If you're from a small enough town, you know that question. Who are your people? And it, sometimes it's loaded. And if you're not from a small town, like, why is that loaded? It's loaded. Who are your people? That's going to put a label on you. And the label here Matthew wants to claim for Jesus is royal lineage and ancient promise. Abraham and David. He's an heir to both the promise of Abraham and the throne of David as Messiah. Lots of other prophetic words in the Old Testament, but really those two are enough to build a case for why Jesus is the one who was promised, who comes and fulfills the ancient hope of Israel. Promised Abraham, throne, 2 Samuel 7 with David, and here we have Jesus. And so that family lineage, that story of who they are, is handed down. Matthew thinks this is the way to start the story. And why not? Each one of those names is a story. We don't know all of their stories, but we know lots of them. We know lots of the stories that are listed that come through different deals. The great hope of King Josiah that is short-lived as he is. We know about Abraham, and we know about King David. They're the Fanaglaph stories that get put on the board during children's Sunday school. Be sure to sign up at 12.15. If we hit that enough for you, go visit over there. Those stories of heroes of the faith, we know these names, and perhaps we think, well, the genealogy is given so that we know that Jesus comes from the good and the important people of Israel. Maybe. But there's a key that unlocks, actually, the stories here if we miss it. The names that are listed are fathers, many of them, and five women. Did you hear the buys? The by and by? By Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth, by the wife of Uriah. Poor Bathsheba can't even get her name in Matthew's gospel. By the wife of Uriah. And then we get Mary. Do you know these women? It unlocks some truth for us. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Mary's his oldest son, he has three boys, he dies. And in the custom of ancient Israel and many ancient cultures, the daughter, I mean, the son's death meant that the next youngest son who wasn't married would marry that woman to keep the family intact, to protect the children of that union, and to create new ones that might also be a part of that story. Second son marries Tamar, he dies. Judah is now thinking that his boys are allergic to Tamar that she's causing many problems. Uh, and he says, well, well, I have a third son, but he's a little young, let's wait. And that's okay, except the waiting goes on a little long. Judah's own wife dies. We know that he is in grief. He's also uh, in business, and so he heads off on a trip. Tamar now knows that his youngest son is grown and of marrying age and has not been married to her, which means she has no permanent fixed covenantal claim upon this family, which is a dangerous, perhaps deadly place to be. So Tamar, 
goes to be on the roadside by where Judah would pass. She veils her face and she dresses in such a way as to suggest that this is an entrepreneurial moment for her. If your neighbor looks confused, can you explain that to them? Maybe this will help. Judah, in his grief, sees her, decides to hire her for that service, paying with his ring and his staff. A few months later, the folks around the community notice that Tamar looks like a woman who's going to have a child, which is wildly inappropriate for a two-time widow with no husband. And so they bring her before Judah, and they say, this woman has clearly sinned. She is great with child. What shall we do? And Judah, who is the head of the family clan, the judge and jury, says that she has violated and shamed our family name. She has transgressed the law of God. The punishment is stoning. Get your rocks. So they gather around and start dusting off their rocks, preparing her for the execution. And she says, the man who is responsible for the state I find myself in is the owner of this ring and the staff. And this is the part in Law and Order where it goes, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and Judah says, amazingly, let her go and let her be. She is more righteous than I. It is Judah's job to make sure Tamar never feels like her only option is to be on the side of the road, hoping somebody come by and gives her an out in a broken life. Tomorrow has twins that are named in the lineage. Down the lineage we go a little bit, and we come upon a woman named Rahab. Now, while Tamar's moment of entrepreneurial spirit was a one-off and in desperation, Rahab is a pro. <laughs> I really worked on how do I tell these stories. <laughs> Rahab's a pro, uh, and she is in Jericho. She is aligned with the uh, controllers of the land as the people who have been delivered by God out of Egypt, led by Moses, now by Joshua in the book of Joshua, on their way into the land of God's promise. They're trying to get in the land, and Jericho's how you do it, which is why there's so many layers. That city's been fought over so many times. So they go to Jericho, and they send spies. And if spies are looking for a place to be incognito in a city, a place of a professional entrepreneur would be a place to visit that people wouldn't ask a lot of questions. Questions. So they meet Rahab, the spies do, and Rahab says, I want to be with your God, with your people. And Rahab is integrated into the story of Israel, a Canaanite professional woman brought into the story. And Boaz is her son. Isn't that interesting? Boaz is her son. That matters because Boaz shows up in the story of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman, a foreign woman committed to a foreign god on the other side of the Dead Sea, off the Transjordan. These are foreign people that Israel's not all that keen on for most of their history. But there's a famine in Bethlehem. It's a town you may have heard of. And the place of bread doesn't have any. And so they go, Naomi does, into Moab. She's married. She has two sons. They're married to Moabite girls. All the men die. And it's just Naomi, Ruth, and her other daughter-in-law. The other daughter-in-law goes back to her people because that's what they do because she doesn't have people anymore because there's no men around. But Ruth says, no, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This great testament of faith from someone who's supposed to not be faithful. She's a Moabite woman who's supposed to be dangerous. The Old Testament's filled with warnings. Look out for foreign women and their foreign gods. Here's a foreign woman 
who shows faithfulness to the one true God of Israel. Naomi brings Ruth back. They try to make a life in, in substance gleaning off of fields. They see Boaz. Boaz takes notice of Ruth. Naomi gets Ruth ready, sends her to the threshing floor where generally good Hebrew girls don't visit. And Boaz proves that he is a man of honor and a kinsman redeemer in the story. Maybe because his mom taught him that what we see and what we judge isn't always the story that God has for the person before us. David sits on his throne. He is conquered. He is well-fed. He's no longer a shepherd boy fighting lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. He's not fighting Goliath. He's sitting well in a kingdom united under his rule. He's sitting in a city that bears his name. And in the season in which kings go off to war, David stays home. And David looks down on the city that is his in the land of his control and sees something he'd like sees a woman bathing on her rooftop that's below his, and so calls her, sends an invitation for dinner. Her husband's off fighting David's battles. A few weeks later, David realizes he might have a situation on his hand, and so he calls Uriah back from the battle to give a report and then visit home to cover up David's transgression. But Uriah is faithful to the calling and purposes of God, won't go home because his men aren't home. And so David sends him back to the battle, put him in the fiercest part, and so Uriah falls and dies. So that when the woman who comes to David's house gives birth, he can do so, she can do so in the house giving birth to Solomon, David's son, the next king. David steals what isn't his, takes advantage of a woman who maybe can't say no, orchestrates the death of that rival, and then brings them into the throne room and tries to act like nothing's wrong. Some of those flannel graph stories are a little fuzzy on the edges. And then we get to Mary. And you think, finally, a woman we can tell our daughters to be like. And the church has done this. People who dress like me have done this sometimes. There are all these other women listed, and they are scandalous. They're professional. Mary, she is pure. She is pure. This is the one you want to be like. But you know what? That isn't the story told of Mary and Nazareth at all. The whispers around Nazareth would have been, I hear it's not Joseph's. I hear he tried to leave her. The stories would have been told and whispered, and Mary would have tried to walk, not hearing them, young and knowing she's caught up in something bigger than herself and not knowing what all that means. But they would have talked. They would have thought she's just like those kind of girls, like Tamara by the roadside or Rahab at her store. Put them by the curb. Throw them away. They're trash. Except that Mary's not the exception to the story. She's in fact the model of what's ultimately true in what God is doing in Jesus. And so he's doing it in his own family. If you think back on your own story and your own family and you think, my goodness, the, the wounds and pains and brokenness we have known, if only everybody knew, there's no chance that Jesus could show up and work here. These are his people. People who get judged and labeled, people who make mistakes, who cheat, sometimes lie, sometimes orchestrate murder. And yet, here in this family, the promise is unbroken. Because the faithfulness to that promise is not in the vessel that delivers it, but the one who has made it. So God says, You keep trying to throw away, you keep trying to call trash that which not only is my beloved, I treasure it. God doesn't tolerate Rahab 
and Ruth and Uriah's wife Bathsheba or Tamar or you or me. God doesn't tolerate us. God isn't looking to excuse us and be okay with the stench that is our life. God instead treasures us, gathers us up, cleans us up and says, stop trying to throw it away. That's mine. Watch what I can fill it with. Watch what I can fuel it with in the story of the Messiah made real in the world. The light that comes to be flesh in Jesus Christ, no darkness, no story, no failing, no faltering can overcome. Rahab, Tamar, Judah, David, Abraham, he's got a story. They aren't trash. They're God's treasure-carrying vessels, and so are we if we find ourselves in the same story. Because the light that's born in Jesus Christ on Christmas is not fading in the darkness that threatens, is not undone by the brokenness you have known, is not unconstructed uh, or torn apart by the brokenness in our own stories in our past. No, it is pouring into, pouring through, because that's what it's always done. In the midst of the promise, broken vessels have delivered this to the world, and so we too are called. Oftentimes we think we're trash. We think other people are trash. We set them out by the road curb. Maybe, maybe after we retire, we think, well, I don't have a job anymore, so I'm not valuable anymore. I should just go be outside there and see if they'll pick me up and throw me away. Or maybe I'm not in that relationship anymore, and so now I feel like trash. I can't, I can't play that sport anymore. Now I feel like trash. I, I, I used to root for a team that won national championships. Now they get whipped by Baylor. I mean, things happen. <laughs> not trash. You're not trash, and the people that we think it might be convenient if they were disposable aren't. This is the season of calling back from the curb all that we try to throw away and watch as God make something beautiful out of it. Ellie is five and she's excited about Christmas and in this season, many things get delivered to the house and they come in boxes. That little laughter you hear is the row of my family. They know where this is going. So there's this whole thing where, you know, we wanna get that to the, to the blue box, the blue trash can. That's the recycling cardboard trash can. That's the goal. Except if Elias sees it, it won't make it. Because what we think is trash or the need to go to recycling is just the beginning of the next great piece of art she will offer the world. She will color them, cut them, build them, stack them. There are a mountain of these boxes being built on her, her crafting table that she has in the room that is now the room. Because... Sometimes five-year-olds are right. That which we think is disposable in the right hands is art. You, in God's hands, are art. The beauty he brings to a world that has a broken heart is from things people want to throw away. Or us. Or our families and the folks that wear us out and worry us, not disposable, art. In fact, the only way to throw away a trash can, you know what it is? To make it not a trash can anymore. You take the crack and you stomp it down and put it inside of another trash can and then they'll take it. So long as it's the thing it was made to be, can't be thrown away. And God says the same for you and for I. 
As the grace of Jesus Christ is poured out in the child born to Mary, so too that same light and hope can be born to us. So the world that is aching in heart to see something beautiful might see God's art in us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for you pulling us back from the curb when we try to throw ourselves or throw others uh, or throw away that which you value. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear your treasure. And Lord, may we see the stories different that we think we go and we think these women are the scandal and they're not, they're your treasures, your vessels for the promise and your power and your presence. And it isn't that the others succeeded. It is not, in fact, about our performance or our perfection. It's about your power to transform that which was trash into treasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.